Okay, so firstly, I have to say that I was really inspired to do this episode. This wasn't one of those times where I find myself scavenging for news stories at the last minute. Even then, I still try to pick uh, stories that interest me or I'm somewhat passionate about. I happened to be watching a video of Graham Hancock giving a lecture, and he started discussing Richard Dawkins and his views on the afterlife. And I thought to myself, man, I have to turn this into an episode or talk about it on the show. I have to admit covering this topic puts me in a bit of a weird position because I'm actually a fan of both men. But that could be a good thing. I think because of my respect for both of them, it will in a way make it that much easier to try to remain fair and intellectually honest. Although admittedly at the end of the day, I tend to lean more towards the materialist side like Dawkins. And speaking of that, you might be thinking, wait, you're an atheist, agnostic atheist technically, and yes, that's a thing, belief claim versus knowledge claim and all that. Uh, you know, what the hell is it you like about Graham Hancock? And if you're not familiar, Graham Hancock, and Hancock, there's the drinking game word of the week, <clears throat> and do I have to do this? No offense intended towards Mr. Hancock, who I admire greatly, but I have a very juvenile sense of humor, and uh, this is probably like the moment where my friend Russ Ray is cringing, wondering what I'm about to say. Uh, and I know some of you out there probably have a juvenile sense of humor as well. So let's get it out of the way. Hancock. And in fairness, it's Hancock, not Handcock. It reminds me of how one of my favorite fantasy authors is named Michael Moorcock, and whenever I'm having a discussion with a group of people and mention that one of my favorite authors is named Michael Moorcock, inevitably at least one or two people will offer up a giggle or a chuckle. Um, I'm already regretting this digression, but yeah, if you're into sword and sorcery, fantasy, and that type of stuff, check out Michael Moorcock's uh, Elric. There, there is me chuckling. Check out Michael Moorcock's Elric series. It's absolutely amazing. But anyway, so what is it an agnostic atheist like myself would like about Graham Hancock? And like I was going to explain before I went off on that juvenile tangent, Graham Hancock, if you're not familiar, is a British journalist. Not that his age matters, but just to give you some context, he was born in 1950, began his career doing mainstream journalism, writing for papers like The Times, The Independent, The Guardian, and he was even the East Africa correspondent for The Economist. And I think it was around the time that he was working for The Economist that he started developing an interest in ancient structures and civilizations. He would end up becoming a proponent of a number of uh, quote-unquote fringe theories concerning things like the Egyptian pyramids, Atlantis, and so on and so on. I embrace a much more mainstream view of those things, but even so, I still love listening to Graham Hancock speak. He's very eloquent, and he's obviously a very intelligent and passionate individual, and I don't think you have to believe or agree with everything he says in order to find his lectures or commentary entertaining and thought-provoking. I think one reason why I tend to like Graham Hancock might just have to do with sentimentality or nostalgia. I've been a documentary junkie for most of my life, especially documentaries having to do with religion, ancient history, even the supernatural. And I can remember being young and seeing Graham Hancock in old A&E History Channel or Discovery documentaries about ancient civilizations, etc., so I almost think of him as this figure from my past that I have fond memories of. 
Another reason why I like him is that I really admire and am fascinated by his views on things like psychedelics and consciousness. I'm a Joe Rogan fan, and I always enjoy when he has Graham Hancock on. Now, once again, I tend to lean towards the materialist side, so I don't really share his views on things like consciousness being able to exist outside the body, or that beings he communicates with during DMT or ayahuasca trips are actually real interdimensional entities or whatever. But I'm fascinated by shamanism. I'm fascinated by the potential or use of psychedelics to explore and expand consciousness. And another thing I like about him, and I like this about David Icke too, and if you're not familiar, David Icke believes in things like reptilians and global conspiracies, etc. But nevertheless, I like the way that both David Icke and Graham Hancock really passionately and defiantly promote freedom of thought freedom to be yourself and realizing your own potential and shrugging off the shackles of conformity, etc. But yeah, even though I'm an agnostic atheist, I'll watch both of those guys and I'll keep my skeptic hat on, but try not to be too closed off and I'll take or glean what I can from what they have to say. And before I forget, I also appreciate Graham Hancock's passion for Gnostic Christianity. I have a long-standing fascination with Gnosticism myself. I actually did a whole episode on the subject a while back. You can find it on either YouTube or in the Podbean archives. If you're not familiar, Gnosticism was an early form of Christianity uh, that placed a heavy emphasis on mysticism and secret knowledge, and also held some heretical views like the idea that the God of the Old Testament was actually a corrupt, inferior being known as the Demiurge. Anyway, to bring things back around, so to be honest, I don't know what Richard Dawkins thinks or has to say about Graham Hancock, but I have heard Graham Hancock mention Richard Dawkins numerous times, and it's usually not in a very flattering or charitable way, although I think he will at least admit that Dawkins is an intelligent and well-spoken man. I think... The first time I heard him mention him was on an episode of Joe Rogan's podcast where Joe and Graham were talking about DMT and uh, Graham Hancock started talking about how uh, how much a materialist like Dawkins and his ilk could probably benefit from a DMT or ayahuasca trip. And in some way I might agree, but for different reasons. I think Graham Hancock thinks hardcore materialist scientists should trip because it may lessen their materialistic worldview and open them up more to kind of fringe beliefs concerning spirit and consciousness or whatever. Whereas I think you can benefit from a psychedelic trip without having to necessarily buy into a bunch of hocus pocus. It just might end up altering your perspective or worldview for the better without you necessarily walking away from the experience believing in things that can't be empirically proven. But I think in fairness to Graham Hancock, trips, whether you're talking about lysergic acid, psilocybin, or whatever, I've never done DMT or ayahuasca, can definitely give you the impression that everything is connected and that you're plugged into the infinite. I would love to see Dawkins trip, though. I think that would be fun. And I really like Dawkins, so I hope it would uh, be a great and positive experience for him if he decided to do it. And it should go without saying, but if you're a young person out there listening to or watching this without any experience with psychedelics, be very careful and think long and hard before you do anything like that. Just as a good trip can be one of the best experiences of your life, a bad trip can be one of the worst or most hellish experiences of your life. 
And you have to take into consideration factors like mood and setting, who you're with, family history of mental illness, and whether or not you're on any prescription drugs that could interact badly with the psychedelic you're consuming, etc. Definitely no joke. I've actually considered taking a trip to try ayahuasca, but as powerful and beneficial as the experience could possibly be, it also sounds quite harrowing. I believe the trip usually starts off with some heavy vomiting. And for someone like me who's on antidepressants, I would probably have to break from my pills and let them wash out of my system, which could be problematic since I take them for headache prevention. I might still keep ayahuasca and DMT on my bucket list, but other than that, my tripping days are pretty much over. Not the type of thing you want to try your luck with too many times, especially if you have a family history of uh, mood disorders, etc. But uh, once again, let's get back on track. So I'm going to play a clip of Graham Hancock talking about Richard Dawkins, and uh, I'll comment on it as we go along. What happens when we die? Nobody knows the answer to this question, surely. Many, we, we're all going to ask ourselves this question at some point in our lives because it's fundamental to the human condition. Uh, and it's surely a big question. Uh, do we just stop or, or do we go on in some way? And we may bring to this question our religious beliefs that, that we may have developed as adults or that may have been drummed into us from childhood. Uh, or science may condition our thinking on this question. Lots of different reasons why we would think about it in many, many different ways. And I'm sure there's as many different views on the subject in this room as there are people in the room. But this man, Richard Dawkins, the professor of the history of science at Oxford University, or at least so he was until recently, um, he knows the answer to what happens to us when we die. Um, because um, he was asked this question, um, how do you, talk about a leading question, how do you prepare for death in a world where there isn't a God? Okay, I'll stop there for a moment. I don't know if I agree that the question was necessarily leading. I didn't see the original video, so I don't know what the interviewer's uh, biases or leanings are, but they may have simply been trying to ask Dawkins, how does someone with your particular worldview, an atheistic worldview, prepare for death? But I don't think it's a big deal either way. I think Dawkins' answer is more important than the way in which the question may have been couched. And he replies, you prepare for it by facing up to the truth, which is that life is what we have, and so we had better live our life to the full. I can't object to that. I totally agree. We should live this magnificent gift of life to the full. But then he says, we'd better live our life to the full while we have it because there is nothing after it. And what I want to know is, how does Richard Dawkins know that? <laughs> what science is that based on? What experiment, what weighing or measuring counting, what has Dawkins done that he knows there is nothing after death? Has he died, been there, found nothing, explored nothing, come back, reported on it? No, he hasn't. And actually, what Dawkins is doing here, he is expressing his own, I would say, very narrow, very limited religious belief. This is a religious belief that there is no life after death. It's an act of faith. There is no evidence for that belief. It is not a scientific fact. It's just his point of view. But because he's this esteemed professor with a, who wrote The Selfish Gene, for goodness sake, background in genetics, people tend to buy this and say, oh, gosh, yes, Dawkins says there's no life after death, and so there must be no life after death. Well, really, how do we know that, you know? Okay, so Graham Hancock, uh, obviously a very smart guy, very deep thinker, 
But I have to admit that I was a little disappointed hearing him repeat this kind of hackneyed cliche or talking point that atheism is a religion and that not believing in a God or an afterlife is a matter of faith. And of course, I'm paraphrasing those weren't his exact words, but nevertheless, it seems to be the gist. He kind of indignantly goes on to say, how does Dawkins know there's no life after death? What test has he done? What evidence does he have? Well, as far as atheism being a religion or requiring faith, if you're a fellow non-believer, you too have probably had to deal with this sort of thing. And I think it shows a marked misunderstanding of how the average atheist views the world. Most atheists I know don't claim to know with 100% certainty that there is no God. And in fact, as far as I'm aware, the majority of atheists tend to technically be agnostic atheists like myself. There is that overlap. We're agnostic because in a spirit of intellectual honesty, we admit that we can't definitively prove or disprove the existence of God. But we're atheistic because as far as we can tell, the world's religions are just man-made belief systems, and there seems to be a dearth of evidence for things like a particular creator god, ghosts, spirits, and afterlife, etc. I remember hearing Victor Stenger once say during a debate that even he's agnostic towards the god of the deists, or some vague notion of a higher power, but his atheism is much harder in regard to the faith claims of man-made religions, and that goes for me, too. And many of us non-believers start out as believers. Dawkins himself had a Christian upbringing, but really began to lose his faith somewhere in his teens. And it was pretty much the same with me. I was raised Catholic, but started having doubts at an early age. It was all downhill after learning the truth about Santa and the Easter Bunny. And uh, then by my teens, I was really starting to question religion. In my late teens and early 20s, I just really in good conscience couldn't believe anymore. It would have taken a certain amount of intellectual dishonesty and wish thinking for me to continue believing in a doctrine that to me seemed clearly man-made. And around that time, I went through some really brutal dark nights of the soul, to borrow a religious phrase. I didn't like the idea that there may not be a god or an afterlife. In fact, I found it absolutely horrifying and it caused a deep despair in me. And yet that's the conclusion that my reason led me to. And as self-congratulatory as it might sound, I think I have a kind of ethical zeal for the truth that makes me want to know what the actual truth is, no matter how hard or terrible it might be. I think there's something dishonest or undignified about embracing notions that can't be empirically proven simply because they give you a sense of comfort. But as I said last week, I try to have a softer approach in my personal life. I'm not going to try to browbeat my friends and family into being atheists. And I want the people I care about to be happy. So whatever they believe in is all right with me, unless they try to jam their beliefs down my throat or look down their nose at me for my own lack of belief. But I think that's what happens to many of us. We start out religious, but as our reasoning and critical thinking skills develop, we start to suss out the man-made nature of religion, and our reason erodes our faith in a sense. It's not like atheists come knocking on our door one day asking if we've heard the bad news, and whammo, we're converted. I don't think atheism is a religion. I think it's simply a label that denotes a lack of belief, 
And I think many of us, including some bigwigs like Dawkins and Harris, aren't even all that crazy about the label atheist. We just kind of go with it out of ease of use or an attempt to keep things simple. As far as evidence for an afterlife, I think Graham Hancock is right. None of us knows for certain what happens when we die. But I don't think it's close-minded or arrogant to assume or conjecture based on what we know about the physical world and the nature of the brain, that consciousness is probably an emergent property, and when the brain goes, it's probably lights out. As awful as that sounds, and I'm definitely not saying that's what I want to be true, I've kind of made peace with my own mortality, but I find the idea of the people I care about passing and being gone for good to be very disturbing. But once again, I feel a kind of principled need to face the truth of reality, no matter how terrible it might be. Uh, once again, Graham Hancock's right in the sense that we don't know for certain either way. Uh, but let's resume the clip. What is this thing called death? Is this widely used legal definition, complete cessation of brain function as evidenced by absence of brainwave activity on an electroencephalogram? Well, I would say we are not our brains. We are our consciousness. You know, we're not our knees either, or our elbows, or our shoulders. We, we well, not to sound like a wise ass, um, but we don't think with our knees, elbows, or shoulders. We are what all of us, every one of us in this room is, is a spark of light, a spark of consciousness. We are our consciousness. And yes, certainly the brain is involved in consciousness in some vital way. But it's unclear exactly how. And this was the first area that I got into trouble with TED for my brief TED talk, which was on their website for a couple of weeks before they took it off. And, and I couldn't initially understand why they'd taken it off, but it later became clear that there is a faction of scientists who advise TED who belong to what is called the materialist reductionist tendency. That they believe that all phenomena can be reduced to matter, that there is nothing outside the material realm, eff effectively nothing that can't be weighed, measured, or counted. And to suggest that consciousness might in some way be non-local to the brain, cannot be reduced to the brain, cannot be localized to the brain, is a kind of act of heresy from the point of view of this faction of scientists, who, amongst whom whose number is Richard Dawkins. Now, there's the question, does the brain make consciousness the way a generator makes electricity? That is the view of the reductionist tendency in science. That all our consciousness is, actually they call it an epiphenomenon of brain activity. It's actually a kind of accident that we have consciousness at all. Because what, from their point of view, what our brains are there to do is to help us, it's all about survival of the fittest. It's about Darwinian um, uh, competition. And our brains have evolved to enable us to be incredible survivors in this material realm. And as an accidental byproduct of this, we've got this annoying thing called consciousness. And therefore, since our brains make our consciousness, it follows, if you hold that point of view, that when our brains are dead, flatline on the ECG, consciousness is gone. There's nothing left. It's over. Our story is over. We are just meat. We are reduced to matter, and there is nothing more to us, and, and it's over. If you hold that point of view, you cannot possibly believe in life after death. How could there be life after death? How could the consciousness survive death when your brain is dead? 
doesn't make sense. Um, and such things as near-death experiences, um, or indeed uh, other issues that suggest non-local character of consciousness, like, like um, out-of-body out of experiences, telepathy, all such things must be fantasies. There can be no reality to them from the reductionist point of view. But there's another possibility if we're in this realm of of analogies, which is that the relationship of consciousness to the brain might be more like the relationship of the TV signal to the TV set. And again, I got into trouble with Ted even for suggesting this and, and for saying, and I stick by this, that there is nothing in neuroscience that rules this out. See, the materialist scientist will say, I know your brain makes your consciousness, because if I damage this or that area of your brain, this or that area of your consciousness will blink out. It will be gone. Therefore, that proves that your brain made that bit of your consciousness. But isn't that true with the TV analogy, too? If you damage the TV screen, the picture won't be quite so good, will it? But the TV signal will still be there. The signal will still be perfect. And, and there's, there's nothing that I'm aware of in neuroscience that rules out this possibility, that the brain is actually a transceiver of consciousness rather than a generator of consciousness. The brain is the interface between a non-material and a material realm through which consciousness manifests on this plane. And, and I mean, this is broadly the view uh, of all spiritual traditions. So I think any reasonable person should be willing to admit that what we're looking at here is a 50-50 is shot. You know, we don't know. We just don't know. We live after death. We don't live after death. 50-50. And then we have all this other stuff. You know, the, 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 the ghosts, the spirits, the near-death experience. What about reincarnation? What about Ian Stevens' work at the University of Virginia? 15 years trying to... So I apologize for my sloppy editing there. I kind of cut Graham Hancock off uh, mid-sentence. It wasn't intentional. He goes on to talk about Ian Stevenson, I think it is, a uh, research professor and a psychiatrist who did a lot of work regarding the study of reincarnation. Obviously, I'm doubtful of the existence of reincarnation, but I don't want to be some close-minded Grinch, uh, so I'm not going to say that I know with 100% certainty that it isn't a real phenomenon, and I've even heard people like Sam Harris, one of the four horsemen of quote-unquote new atheism, uh, another person who I greatly admire. I've heard him say that there's some research out there that kind of makes you think, you know? Um, me, personally... Everything seems to boil down to anecdotal stories or maybe kids kind of being either intentionally or unintentionally primed by their parents or something like that. I've never seen any smoking gun evidence for reincarnation. But in fairness, I might devote an entire episode to Ian Stevenson and his work and try to really get down to the nitty-gritty and see what's going on there, instead of just flippantly saying that, you, you know, it's false or whatever. But getting back to that clip, I have to say, I thought it was incredibly honest of Graham Hancock, and I've heard him do this before, to admit that, you know, it could be 50-50. Maybe we continue after death, maybe we don't. I really appreciate that and find it refreshing. It's a lot better than all the people like televangelists and TV psychics out there that will simply tell you what you want to hear. Uh, I appreciate his intellectual honesty in that regard. 
And I've heard this kind of honesty from Hancock on other matters, too, such as the nature of the beings he encounters during his psychedelic trips. He readily admits uh, they seem real to him, but he can't prove it. it. It could just be in my head, or his head, rather, or something like that. So at the beginning of that snippet, he brings up something really important, these two competing models of consciousness. On the one hand, the idea of consciousness as an emergent property of the brain, meaning the meat brain generates and is solely responsible for consciousness. And, and when the brain goes, we go the kind of reductionist materialist view, and then the idea of the brain as a receiver of consciousness, or a transceiver as I think he uh, referred to it, meaning that consciousness isn't local to the brain, the brain is just kind of a temporary home for consciousness, meaning that consciousness can survive brain death, it isn't reliant on the body for its existence. And I think he made a rather thought-provoking point, as someone who leans towards the materialist view myself, I've often used the argument that when a part of the brain is damaged or when someone develops a degenerative brain disease like Alzheimer's, etc., we can see the direct effect it can have on the personality or the self, on things like memory, facial recognition, speech, impulse control, etc., etc. I've used that as an argument for consciousness as an emergent property of the brain. And yet he makes an interesting point that if an antenna is damaged, it will decrease the quality of the reception, but that doesn't mean the signal comes from the antenna itself. I'm not saying I'm convinced. I would absolutely love it if we could prove beyond a doubt that consciousness is non-local. Uh, that would indeed be a major cause for celebration. But unfortunately, I still tend to lean towards the materialist point of view. This whole thing about the brain as a receiver for consciousness reminds me of a book that really had a big effect on me when I was younger. It was Aldous Huxley's uh, The Doors of Perception slash Heaven and Hell, two books in one. And Huxley talks about the idea that the brain has some kind of consciousness reducer valve or something like that. It's been a long time since I read it. And that psychedelic drugs can kind of crank open the valve and let more consciousness in, in a manner of speaking. But let's say for the sake of argument that the brain really is just a receiver. What would that mean for the ego self, for the individual self? Does the individual self survive death or do all our idiosyncrasies and personality traits die with the brain and our consciousness returns or flows back into some impersonal sea of pure consciousness? Uh, in that sense, it, it might be a little better than a kind of poetic atheism. I think most people want to believe that the individual self survives death, in the West at least. Eastern religion is a whole nother ballgame. But I'm gonna leave it there. Thanks, guys. Hope this was more enjoyable than it was boring. And uh, later. <laughs>